We're in chapter 2. Let me get over there. So what I want to do, I'm going to do a brief review just to catch us up. But before I do, I want to read the portion that we've covered so far and include um, what is just immediately ahead of us. So reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as if fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so by way of review, we've covered from verse 1 through verse 16 so far in chapter 2. The event, of course, is the day of Pentecost. It was one of the seven great feast days that God had commanded for his people to observe in the law of Moses, the law of God. And this particular feast day, while all seven feasts symbolically pointed forward in history, to some specific aspect about the person and work of the Messiah when he would arrive. Uh, This particular uh, feast day symbolized, because it was a harvest feast or a harvest festival, it symbolized the great ingathering of God's people. And this event is 
chosen by the Lord to be the day in which he poured out his spirit because it's the beginning of what we call Christianity. It's the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of the great ingathering of a harvest of souls, not just a harvest of, of wheat. As the Holy Spirit was poured out on that day, we've seen that the Lord chose to do it with two specific symbolic experiences. They were real phenomenon that they experienced, uh, but each of these ways that the Lord uh, poured out his spirit were symbolically significant and meant to speak to his people and give us more understanding of the work of the spirit. So we saw that there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and we saw that there was a, a visual uh, event that took place in which they saw flames or tongues of fire sitting on each one of their heads. The sound had to do with the, uh, the idea that the word in both Hebrew and Greek that uh, is translated wind is also the same word for spirit. And so uh, it indicates, just like Jesus has said in the Gospel of John, that they would hear the sound of the Spirit's work, but they would not actually see his presence. And uh, then the tongues of fire, of course, were a symbol of all the way back to the Old Testament of the, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel out of Egypt in his great saving work in the day of uh, the, the Exodus. And then that pillar of fire continued to lead the people throughout the wilderness journey until they eventually reached the promised land. That pillar of fire signifying the Lord's personal presence in his saving work in the midst of his people. What's unique and different about it now in the day of Pentecost is that singular presence of the Lord in the pillar of fire has now been divided and sitting individually on each one of their heads, indicating that the Lord is going to enter into a new and deeper and and greater relationship with each one of the people of God than he ever has in history up until this point. Then uh, a multitude from the city of Jerusalem gathers out of curiosity because they had heard the sound of the Spirit's coming. Peter stands up in the midst of this circumstance along with the other apostles and he proclaims the gospel. We're just starting his, um, his proclamation, his what is called Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And his first focal point in his sermon is um, a quotation from a prophecy of what are co- what is called one of the minor prophets. You know, the minor prophets are not minor in significance. They're just shorter in length. And Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, we won't go back and read it. We're going to be focused on it in detail as Peter references it. The main point that we've seen from that reference so far is that Joel identifies some great new experience of the Spirit of God that's going to take place as a signal from the Lord to his people that the last days have been inaugurated, meaning this is the signal, the outpouring of God's Spirit is the signal that the last days have begun. And so the last thing we focused on in our study a couple of months ago is in what sense are we to understand that key phrase, the last days? And I gave you two viable options. Either it's a reference to what we've emphasized before in our study in Matthew 24, 
the last days of the old covenant, which would be the entire 40 year period between the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ in 30 AD to 70 AD when the temple comes to a a final crashing end and God fully shifts his covenant relationship with his people from the old covenant to the new covenant or it could be as many Bible, um, Bible scholars emphasize it could be a signal that the last days is a reference to what we call the entire church age meaning the final age of human history leading to the second coming of Christ. All right, so that brings us up to our present study. And I want to reread now just verses 17 through 21, which is the focus of our study today. And this is as Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so Peter chose Joel chapter 2 as his primary text for his message on the day of Pentecost. And we can be confident that Peter is, he has just been filled with the Spirit. And we can be confident that his choice of Joel was, was the exact right text for the event that was unfolding and taking place. And he makes, he begins to make from this point forward specific points of emphasis applying the Joel event to what was happening on that day. And there are three specific things that we're going to be focused on as we follow Peter's teaching today and in the studies that are immediately ahead of us. So there are three primary points in the Joel prophecy that Peter quotes and then applies to the events of that day that we're meant to understand. And we're going to take each one of these points individually. So the first one is the Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh when he signals to his people that the last days have now begun. The pouring out of his spirit on all flesh That's going to be the focus of our study today. What's ahead of us, and Lord willing, we will tackle the second part of this next week, which is there will also be some significant things that people will observe happening. He he identifies two categories. There will be wonders in the heavens above, and there will be signs that take place on the earth. So in our next study, I hope to identify what are those wonders, what are those signs? How are we to understand them? And especially the, la- the special language that the Lord uses to describe those, heaven- those signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And then the third point of emphasis, which is just identified by a single line, 
but it's one that we'll slow down for and do an entire study on this single line because it's so critically important. And that is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And why it is that Peter took that Old Testament reference and made it such an important point of emphasis. And it's really where he concludes and finishes his sermon on the day of Pentecost a little bit later in chapter 2. All right, so then for today's study, we're just going to focus on the first of those three points. The Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now, from that single main point, I see three points of emphasis that I want us to tackle one at a time today. Number one, there is no people group that has ever existed or will exist on the face of the earth that is excluded from the blessing that the Lord is promising that is going to be available for those who truly receive the gospel and believe the gospel in a saving way. This blessing is for everyone in that sense. Second, as a result, all true believers in Christ Jesus, those that have heard the true gospel, those that have received it, meaning they actually believe it and embrace it in their heart in in a saving way, every single one of them is therefore filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way, but not in the same manner that they were on the day of Pentecost. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. And then third, as a result, the church is properly defined then from the Lord's perspective, not so much how we self-define. Every church group has its own way of identifying itself and defining itself. You've heard me talk about how many different varieties of Christianity and and Christian churches there are. Just in this country alone, uh, presently over 20,000 so-called Christian denominations are in existence. Every single one of those denominations has their own way of defining themselves. But from the Lord's perspective, as he looks down from heaven upon his church, I think this is the most basic way I can define the church from a biblical perspective. The church is meant by the Lord to be a spirit-filled people who are also, therefore, a spirit gifted people. And I see those three focal points as the main point of why it is that the Lord had Peter emphasize uh, this particular passage from the book of Joel. All right, so let's look at the first point of emphasis then this morning. No people group is excluded from the blessing of the outpoured spirit. This was, this Joel prophecy which was given hundreds of years before the actual event that it was describing on the day of Pentecost, meaning Joel lived many generations before Peter's generation. He lived hundreds of years before the the fulfillment event on the day of Pentecost. And by the Spirit of God, Joel, you know, it's hard to know exactly how to describe a prophet's experience in the Old Testament, but 
Joel was looking ahead into history by the Spirit of God, seeing the day of Pentecost, seeing the events that Peter and the 120 were experiencing at that moment, and he's describing it by the Spirit of God. And as he describes it, he says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, because he's simply taking spiritual dictation from the Lord himself, the Lord says through Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And that sounds to our ears like a very fairly straightforward and simple description of the event. But for the Jewish people on that day, it was really a radical concept and a radical prophecy. You have to understand that the Jewish people had their own perspective of who they were in the world, in the midst of the of the community of nations, the community of different people groups, and they saw themselves, and rightly so, as a special group among all groups. They saw themselves as the chosen people. Now, was that true about them, that they were the chosen people? Absolutely it was true. God himself described over and over to them throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and throughout his many interactions with his people, that he had separated them out from all of the peoples of the earth, out of all of the nations of the earth, and he had chosen them for a special purpose, and that purpose is what we call covenant. He called them into a covenant relationship with himself. God had a, what we could call it, a general relationship with all people on the face of the earth, because he is everyone's creator and everyone is his creation. But not everyone who is created by God is automatically in a covenant relationship with God. And this is why we reserve the term covenant even in our culture today, though we don't use the term as commonly anymore. We reserve that for special relationships like marriage. So a covenant is like a marriage. It's a, it's a close, bonded, connected, intimate, and formal relationship that requires obligations on both sides of that covenant relationship. And God chose throughout all of the era of what we call the old covenant, from starting with Abraham, working all the way through to the point where Joel is making this prophecy, and then later on the day of Pentecost, it's, it's being fulfilled, he chose to enter into a covenant relationship with Israel, and by doing so, he is excluding all other peoples, all other nations, all other groups from enjoying the benefits of what only that covenant relationship can provide. And so in that sense, Israel was not just special, they were bonded to the Lord in a unique and deeper way than any other nation on the face of the earth. Now, the result of that, though, was that in their mind, they were convinced that it would always be exactly that way for all of history to come. Not just for the days of Abraham, not just for the days of Moses, not just for the days of Joel, but for all of history they and they alone would have this special relationship with the Lord. What they had missed in what God had spoken and what God had revealed 
was this more universal emphasis that the Lord had hinted and spoken about in advance saying, yes, I have a special relationship with you now, but I am going to have a similar kind of relationship with more than just you in the future. And so when Joel says, and Peter quotes it directly in verse 17, in the last days, meaning as Joel is speaking it, the Lord is saying, this isn't this way yet. I haven't, I haven't entered into this broader, more universal relationship with the people of the world yet. But in the last days, something is going to shift and something is going to radically change. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what we call universal language. Now, we have to distinguish, just to make sure we don't misunderstand what the Lord is saying, when he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, does the Lord mean by that, that when the last days begin, that he will have a covenant relationship like he had with Israel, but now he will have it with every single person on the face of the earth. Because every single person on the face of the earth does have flesh. I mean, it's, it's, it's essential to our life in this world. We live in bodies of flesh. And so when he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, is the Lord saying, I'm going to have this kind of deep, intimate bond of relationship with every single individual on the face of the earth? And the answer is no, he's not indicating he's going to have it with every individual but he is indicating that he's going to have this new bonded relationship like he did with israel but now he's going to broaden that to other groups of people it's not going to be exclusive to israel any longer israel itself will not be excluded from this new promise but it's israel plus other groups that are now going to be given access to having this same kind of covenant relationship with the Lord. Now, the Lord showed us hints of this in the Old Testament. Um, For instance, in the Old Testament, the Lord never filled even all of Israel with his Holy Spirit. This is one of the most commonly misunderstood points of how the Lord related to his people Israel. In the Old Testament, the Lord did not fill every individual every single israelite with his spirit they all had a covenant relationship with him and they all had a proximity to the working of god's spirit and his evident presence in the midst of his people but that proximity was was um expressed through what we call for instance the tabernacle in the temple in the midst of the people of God. So the Lord had Moses build a tabernacle. Later, he had Solomon build a temple. Those, temple, the, those structures, the, the tabernacle and the temple, were built right in the midst of his people. And the Lord said, that is my house. That is where I will dwell in the midst of my people. And the Lord filled those structures with his presence, but he didn't fill all the individual Israelites. And then he also, at different times in history, selected specific individuals. Let me just give you one example of this. Uh, Turn back 
if you would, to First uh, Samuel chapter 10. The Lord chose at different moments, key moments in Israel's history, he chose specific individuals and filled them with his spirit. Never filling everyone, but filling certain ones among his people. First Samuel chapter 10, I'll just read one verse. This is from the story of Saul, King Saul, the very first king of Israel. And this is the prophet Samuel speaking to the new king Saul. Samuel says, this, or Saul says, excuse me, Samuel says to Saul, I don't want to confuse you there. Samuel says to Saul in verse six, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. And then as the story unfolds, that's exactly what Saul experienced. He experienced the spirit of the Lord. It's a very vivid imagery here. The spirit of the Lord rushing upon him, but as the spirit rushed upon him, he was filled with the spirit and he began to prophesy somewhat similar to what we see happening on the day of Pentecost when the spirit of God fills the 120 and they begin to speak in in other tongues in a miraculous way. Now, in the Old Testament, this is an example of how the Lord made his presence known by filling individuals. The individuals he filled, though, throughout the Old Testament fit into three basic categories. He filled at different times, not constantly, but, but individually and temporarily, he filled prophets with his spirit, each one of the prophetic books from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel and all of the, you know, the minor prophets that follow, uh, all of those books were written as descriptions of the experience of those prophets being filled with the Spirit of God. He filled the high priests of the Lord who, who served him in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And he filled kings. In this case, it was King Saul. Later, we see King David being filled with his spirit. And again, each one of those three types of, of ministries, prophet, priest, and king, were not filled permanently. They were not filled every day, constantly throughout the course of their, their lives, but they were filled for specific purpose at specific moments by the Spirit of God. And we understand that all three of those special roles in Israel are ultimately pointing forward as symbols of the later thing that would happen when the Messiah would arrive and he would be the ultimate expression of prophet, priest, and king for the people of God. And that would be signified at his baptism by the Holy Spirit filling him for those three great missions that he was to accomplish. And the distinction being Jesus was filled permanently and fully, whereas they in the old covenant were filled temporarily. Now there's one key passage, let's turn all the way back to the book of Numbers chapter 11, that's kind of an exception to this pattern that I'm describing. What I've said is that God would fill his people temporarily. He would fill them for a special purpose, but after he was done with that special purpose at any given moment in their lives, 
for their assignment, he would then leave them. And they wouldn't be filled permanently or constantly. And he would only fill special ones, prophets, priests, and kings. This is somewhat of an exception to that pattern. And this is what most Bible scholars describe as an intentional preview of where the Lord was heading in his purposes for his people. This is kind of a preview of the day of Pentecost. And we see this in Numbers chapter 11. I won't set up the whole um, background of what's going on here, but just uh, to make sure we understand, this is the children of Israel on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And uh, the Lord is interacting with Moses here. So I'm going to start reading in verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent, the tent here being the, the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit. That, and that's a reference, of course, to the Holy Spirit took some of the spirit that was on him, meaning that was on Moses, and the Lord put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other Medad. Uh, Not the most common names chosen to name your children. Uh, you, people like to choose Bible names. I've never heard anyone named Eldad or Medad. Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. Why, would, why in the world would Joshua want these two men to stop prophesying in the camp? It just seemed inappropriate to him because all the times before now when the Lord had spoken prophetically to his people on this journey that they were on, uh, how did the Lord choose to speak to his people up until this moment? Exclusively through Moses. Moses was the prophet of God. He would meet with God. God would speak to him and then Moses would come out and he would meet with the people and he would tell them basically, this is what the Lord told me to tell you. And that's what Joshua was used to. Now, for the first time, someone other than Moses himself is speaking on behalf of the Lord because essentially that's what prophesying means. You're, you're understanding what's on the Lord's heart to communicate to his people and then you are, you are the one that's actually communicating that. And so Joshua wants it stopped. And then Moses has an unusual response to Joshua. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Now, we don't know for sure that Joshua was, but I'm going to go with the idea that Moses was discerning what Joshua was thinking. Meaning this is, this is exclusively Moses' territory of ministry. And these guys are robbing some of Moses' spiritual thunder here. And it's my job to, to preserve that for him. But Moses corrects him and it's really a word of rebuke it's a gentle one but it's a word of rebuke and correction are you jealous for my sake and then this response that indicates the heart of the lord and it's a hint about where the lord is heading in his redemptive purposes would that all the lord's people were prophets 
that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now, for the first time, someone other than a prophet, someone other than a high priest, someone other than a king of Israel had received the infilling of the Holy Spirit and spoke the heart and mind and words of the Lord in these prophetic words. And Joshua is dismayed by it, but Moses has spiritual understanding by the grace of God as to what it means. What it means is this is where the Lord is taking his people in his great purposes as they unfold in history. But we're not, essentially, we're not quite there yet. And the, the, the clarity about that is that even though the Lord did take from the spirit of Moses and shared it with the, the 70 elders and they began to prophesy, they didn't continue to prophesy after this day. It wasn't from that day forward for the remainder of the 40-year journey that then you had Moses and 70 other prophets that were all speaking on behalf of the Lord. After this day, it, it went back to just Moses and only Moses was speaking as the prophet of God to the people of God. But for that one day, the Lord showed his people the possibilities and the purposes and the intentions that were in his heart for the future. Now, let's look over into the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And we're, we're fast-forwarding now to the event that we call the Last Supper. And the Lord Jesus is spending one final night with his disciples before the cross. And he's speaking to them about his great purposes that will now continue The Lord Jesus knows full well that he's going to the cross the next day, but that the purposes of God are not going to end there or be defeated there or fizzle out there as he dies on the cross. That's going to be the the sacrifice that he's about to make on the cross is going to be the doorway that's going to open up into an entirely new and greater thing that the Lord is going to be accomplishing in the earth. And many times throughout the Last Supper final instruction, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, the Lord makes a special emphasis on the Holy Spirit in a new and greater relationship with the people of God. Let's look at one of those points of emphasis in John 14, verse, I'll start in verse 15. Jesus says to the disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word another here, there's two different words in the original text. It could mean either one word for another could mean another of a different kind, or it could mean another of the same kind, and that's the word that Jesus chooses here. He's talking about another helper, and he's referencing the Holy Spirit, and he calls the Holy Spirit a helper, but he's going to be another helper, meaning there's already one helper that they know about. And though they haven't called the Lord Jesus by the name helper up until this moment, He's essentially comparing his ministry to the soon-to-be-experienced greater ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, we are both helpers. 
we are both helping you in the purpose of God being accomplished in your lives. And I have helped you in a certain way and the Holy Spirit will help you in a certain way. And he is another helper of the same kind that I am. He says, he will give you another helper to be with you for how long? What's the duration of him being with you? He'll be with you forever, which is distinctly different than the experience of the 70 elders back in the wilderness journey as on one special day. If you can imagine being one of those 70 elders for one special day in your life experience, but only one day, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fills you and you speak as a true prophet of the Lord, understanding the mind and will and purpose of God and then communicating that to the people of God in the way that they most need to hear from him. And then the Spirit of God, when you're done speaking for that day, the Spirit of God leaves you and you never have that experience again. And there's a a, a note of sadness that you'll never have that experience again, but still you have that one shining day on your spiritual resume, on your life experience. You know, we talk about people having a bucket list Can you imagine that one day you were so connected to God, you were so filled with his presence and you understood and spoke for the sake of God's people exactly what they needed to hear. But then that day came to an end and you just went back to your normal life and you never had that experience again. Now what Jesus is saying to his disciples is a tremendous promise. They probably didn't catch the full import of what he was saying to them when he said I will ask the father and he will give you another helper of the same kind that I've been to you to be with you forever they're going to have an experience similar to those 70 elders in the wilderness journey but instead of for a single day only their experience is going to be a forever experience meaning every day for the rest of their lives in this world. And then even when their lives in this world end, their new relationship with this new helper is not going to come to an end. But then in verse 17, the Lord sets a boundary around this experience so that the disciples don't misunderstand. And it's important for us to not misunderstand either. So he clarifies at the beginning of verse 17 what he's talking about, who he's talking about. He's referenced the new helper that's coming, even the spirit of truth. So the helper, the new helper is the spirit of truth. And of course, we know the spirit of truth by his more more, uh, commonly referenced name in scripture, the Holy Spirit. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and so the lord makes a special promise to the 11 men that are with him around the table that night on the on the night of the last supper it's a special promise of a coming experience that they're going to have and when they have it it's going to change their relationship with god because it changes their relationship with the Holy Spirit permanently for the rest of their lives. 
in an unending fulfillment of this promise. And he also sets a boundary and says, but what you're going to experience, the world around you cannot experience it. Meaning this is an experience that is special and reserved only for those that are in true covenant relationship with me. They are being promised a special blessing because they are in covenant with him. And anyone that is in covenant with him will get to share this experience. But anyone who is outside of covenant with him not only will not have this experience, but cannot have this experience because it neither sees him nor knows him, meaning there's no spiritual understanding There's no spiritual perception. Therefore, there is no basis for a true, new, and greater spiritual experience with him. And then the last line in verse 17, you know him, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, tells his 11 disciples, you know him. Um, Had had the disciples had any experience with the Holy Spirit up until this moment in the Last Supper? The answer is yes, they had. Remember, Jesus had sent them out. He had... He had given them a measure of his spirit and the, the grace to do this and then sent them out two by two. And they went out throughout the, the, the land, not permanently, but temporarily. They went on, on what we would call a short-term mission and they proclaimed the gospel and they even did healings and miracles in the name of the Lord. And then they came back to Jesus and reported to him about their experiences. And I'm sure he used that report as as uh, material for their continuing growth as true disciples of his. So they, they've already known the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, but he adds this detail, for he dwells with you, meaning the Holy Spirit has been with them on this journey so far, and will be in you. Now, in this distinction he makes, and it's a distinction just of two small words the difference between someone being with you and someone being in you that's a that's a pretty big difference and the point that he's making is the holy spirit has been present with them strengthening them empowering them gifting them giving them new abilities the ability to proclaim the gospel accurately and truthfully and faithfully and the ability to do healings and miracles accompanying the actual proclamation of the gospel But now, from this point forward, when they have this new experience of this new helper coming to them in a new and greater way, he's going to not just be hanging out around them and with them, he is going to be moving into them. And the point of that is he is going to be making them his home. Now, the only question that's left for us to resolve is, is that a unique experience only for the 11 apostles? And I'm leaving Judas out of the equation because he, at this point, had already left the room to go betray Jesus. Is this a unique experience only for the 11 apostles? Or is this a representative experience that Jesus is describing? Yes, they will experience it first, but is this an experience that others that have the same kind of covenant relationship in the new covenant experience of salvation, others will have along with them. And of course, when we get to the day of Pentecost, that becomes an obvious answer for us. 
How many were actually filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? At the beginning, just what we studied so far in chapter two, the first 16 verses. How many are filled so far in the first 16 verses of Acts 2? 120 disciples. The 11 are mentioned, and of course it's now 12 again because Matthias has been appointed to replace Judas back in chapter one. So the 12 are standing up on the day of Pentecost with Peter as their spokesman proclaiming the gospel to the gathered multitude. But 120 have already been filled. We're already at a greater number than the 70 elders back in the Old Testament journey. And then the only question we have to resolve is, okay, so yes, it's more than just the 12. There's 120 of them that have been filled, but is it just for those 120, just for that single special day? Or is this an experience that they, in a sense, represent us? That the Lord is doing something with them, something for them, and ultimately something in them and through them that he intends to do in, for, and through every true believer that will ever come into covenant relationship with him. And it really is that latter point. Now, um, the only other thing I want to emphasize about the key phrase, and let's head back to Acts 2 now. The key phrase is, again in verse 17 of chapter 2, in the last days it shall be declares, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I've already emphasized that it, it, it's, it's an intention of the Lord and he's, he's speaking to his people, the Jewish people. And when he says, I'm going to in the future, in the last days, when they start, I'm going to pour out my spirit, not just upon you, not just upon the Jewish people, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's a clear emphasis from the Lord through the prophet Joel that he's going to pour out his spirit even on Gentiles. Now, we haven't gotten there in the book of Acts yet. So far, everyone on the day of Pentecost is Jewish only. This is a Jewish exclusive experience so far in the earliest history of the church in the book of Acts. But by the time we get to chapter 10, and even really before chapter 10, in chapter 8, we're going to see the Spirit is going to be poured out on Samaritans, which to the Jews was, may it never be that the Spirit of God would be poured out on Samaritans. They're horrible people. God would never do that. We'll see that God will pour out his Spirit on the Samaritans. And then beyond that in chapter 10, and from chapter 10 and beyond, the emphasis shifts from the Jewish people to the Gentile people. The Jews are still in the picture, but God is making it evident and super clear by all of the emphasis from chapter 10 throughout the rest of the book of Acts that he intends to pour out his Spirit on all the Gentile people as well. But I want you to think in terms of people groups because we're going to see as the rest of this, this prophecy of Joel unfolds that he's emphasizing, I'm going to pour out my spirit on Jews. I'm going to pour out my spirit on Gentiles. I'm going to pour out my spirit on males, which was the Jewish expectation. The males are the leaders. Of course, they'll need to be pour, you know, uh, filled with the spirit of God. But probably not the females. God is going to pour out his spirit on the females as well. God is going to pour out his spirit on the older ones in the community, and he's going to pour out his spirit on the younger ones in the community. God is going to pour out his spirit on the free men in the community, and he is even going to pour out his spirit 
May it never be thought or considered, but yes, this is God's purpose. He's even going to pour out his spirit on the slaves in the community so that there is no people group that's excluded. And then, of course, as we've already seen in the early verses of chapter 2, there were representatives from every nation known within the sphere of the Roman Empire that were there in Jerusalem who will be filled with the Spirit before the events of chapter 2 are finished. All right, so let's move to our next point of emphasis. And that is, all true believers receive the outpoured Spirit. So, if you belong to the Lord... If you have heard the true gospel of salvation about who Jesus is in his true identity and what Jesus accomplished in his mission in this world, and if you have embraced that message in your heart in a saving way, and therefore you are truly born again, then you received the Spirit of God and were filled with the Spirit of God at the same moment that you were truly born again. Let me just real quickly take you through three key passages. First, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. This is one of the great feast days, and Jesus was in Jerusalem for this feast day, and we're going to... This is the Feast of Booths, different feasts than the day of Pentecost. I won't go into the whole backdrop of the Feast of Booths as it relates to what Jesus has to say, but all of that is significant. I just don't have time for it today. Uh, John chapter 7, I'll start reading in verse 37. So the Feast of Booths, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is there, and on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, He's standing up not like on some random empty street corner with cars passing by and no one hearing him and understanding what's going on, like you'll occasionally see a street preacher nowadays. He stood up in the midst of the gathered festival crowd, and he cried out with a loud voice, and I guarantee you that he arrested the attention of the crowd. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, that was an incredibly presumptuous declaration unless he is who he was claiming to be in this declaration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a, a, what we would call a general call to salvation. And then this line in verse 38, he makes a special promise for those who respond to that call in a truly saving way with true faith whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water whom and then now this is this is john's comment later as he's writing the gospel of john he makes a short commentary about what jesus has just declared Verse 30, 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Now there's a whole mini theology of salvation and our experience of the Holy Spirit of God that's contained within that one declaration that John makes in his commentary. But let me just highlight the most important part of it. Number one, John emphasizes that everyone who truly believes the gospel message about Jesus, everyone, no exceptions, are to receive the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit in a new and greater way like Jesus later described to his disciples in the Last Supper. Every single true believer receives the Spirit. But the Spirit at this moment in history had not yet been given in that way because we're still waiting for Jesus to accomplish the plan of salvation by his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But once he does, the next unfolding great event in God's purposes is the day of Pentecost and how that is then applied to true believers from that day forward throughout the rest of what we call the church age. Let's look at, uh, I'm going to skip John 14 because we just read that same one, which is an emphasis about the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. Let's skip over to or jump over to Romans chapter 8. And this is now Paul's statement, essentially different wording, but essentially making the same exact point with the same exact emphasis that Jesus made in the great feast day of the day of Booths and that John commented on to clarify to make sure we understood. Romans chapter 8, just a single key verse, verse 9. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. So whatever he's saying here doesn't apply only to a special subgroup of the congregation of the church in Rome. This applies to every believer in the church, everyone that's truly born again. He says in verse 9, you, however, you believers, you Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then he makes sure that you don't miss his emphasis, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what's the takeaway from from this emphasis that Paul makes? If you have not received the Spirit of God, you haven't actually come to know the Lord at all. You haven't been born again. But if you have been born again, you have received the Spirit of God because God's purposes in New Covenant, New Testament salvation is that his people are going to have a new and greater and permanent covenant relationship with the Holy Spirit, so close, so intimate, that the only proper comparison is to a marriage. The Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of you if you have truly been born again. All right, so then that brings us to our third and final point of emphasis this morning, and that is that the, the, the simple working definition of the church that I've given to you is that the church is a spirit-filled people who are therefore a spirit-gifted people. So I've made the case, I hope, effectively, 
that if you belong to the Lord, the Spirit of God belongs to you. Not in the sense that we own the Spirit of God, but that we have a new and close and, and covenant kind of relationship with him, and he has that new and close and covenant kind of relationship with us. But the, the, the only question that remains is, what is he living inside of you for? Why is he there? What's it all about? What's the whole point of the Spirit coming and moving and living inside of you? It's to gift you to represent him and accomplish purposes on his behalf in the world in the same way that every Spirit-filled person in the Old Covenant did. All of the special experiences that prophets, priests, and kings were given in order to accomplish some special purpose for the Lord now is the common experience of every true believer in the new covenant. Doesn't mean that you're going to be as famous as a prophet, a priest, or a king in the community of of the believers, but it does mean that if you belong to the Lord, the Spirit of God belongs to you and you are filled with his presence and it's not just to sit there and kind of enjoy it. Now, do I, do, do I personally enjoy having the Spirit of God living inside of me? Oh, yes, I do. But I recognize that he lives inside of me for a purpose. And we've, we've focused as, as a church many times before on the importance of recognizing that you, each one of you, have been given a gift because you have an assignment from him and you are meant to accomplish something in his name on his behalf for his purposes and for his glory. And if you're not about that business, then you're not getting it. That's what this, that we call church, is really meant to be about. A spirit-filled people who are spirit-gifted people who are then spiritually accomplishing the purposes and assignments that God has given to them to accomplish in order to represent him in the earth the way that he wants to be represented. Let's look at one key passage. I've got more than one in my notes. I'll just reference those, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to read this one. And that is 1 Peter. Chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is a every Christian experience description by Peter, who was the same one, of course, that was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Verse 10. As each, we're meant to stop and ask each who, each believer, each born-again one, each Christian, each church member, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In these two verses, Peter encapsulates what it means to be truly saved, what it means to be born again, what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, what it means to be gifted by God. 
It means that you're supposed to accomplish something in his name for his purposes. And he, as, as you maybe remember me describing it before, he breaks down that experience into two subcategories to make it easier as a starting point for us to figure out in what way am I to serve him? Essentially, you're either going to serve him primarily through the words that you speak or you're going to serve him primarily through the actions and behaviors and, and practical service that you accomplish in his name. And my primary gift, though I do practical service as well, my primary gift is through the words that I speak. It may not be the case for you. Your, your, your primary gifting may be in the area of practical service. But one way or the other, you have a gift in one of those two categories. And then in each category, there are multiple variations of speaking gifts, multiple variations of practical serving gifts. But in every case, that's what being filled with the Spirit of God will result in. Now, Joel goes on to describe, and Peter follows Joel's description. He talks about your sons and daughters who will begin to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. He is describing what I've just been describing, that it's not just limited to the leaders of the community of faith any longer. All of the young men, all of the young women, even your sons and your daughters are going to have these kinds of experiences with the Lord and serve the Lord in these new and supernatural kind of ways. Even, he goes on to emphasize at the end in the Joel prophecy, even your male and female servants shall prophesy. Even your slaves, the, the least likely within the community in that ancient culture, will have this kind of experience. All right, we're going to end back in chapter two and then we'll sing one last song of worship this morning. And what I'm gonna do here in Acts chapter two is I'm gonna jump ahead of what we've been focused on and I'm gonna jump to the end of Peter's message that day. So we're just studying so far the beginning of Peter's message and what we've seen that he quotes the prophecy of Joel and he connects it to the events of the day of Pentecost and he says, look, this is what Joel was talking about. And we're experiencing it right now. But as the crowd gathers and he proclaims this message, this is where he ends up at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 38. And Peter said to them, this is the gathered uh, 3,000 some odd souls that were there out of curiosity to find out what was going on. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is Peter making what we call a call to salvation. Come, repent, believe the gospel and be baptized in water. And then he says, this is what will happen next. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not might, I hope so. We're gonna have a prayer service after this, you know, after I finish my message, after you guys get baptized, we're hoping that some of you are gonna be filled with the Spirit of God. He says, if you repent, if you believe this message, if you respond in obedience and baptism, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, what promise? The, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this is just a, Peter making super, super clear 
that everything that I've been describing this morning about this new and greater relationship with the Spirit of God is meant to be experienced by every true believer that belongs to him. Let's worship.